You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 131. That's Psalm 131. I thought this would be a good text to begin the year with. Um, Psalm 131 is a short psalm. It's only three verses long, uh, but it is an absolute gem that is worthy of our attention. Um, it's, It's a psalm of quiet trust and hope in God for the future. Some commentators classify it as a psalm of confidence. Um, It's a psalm that instructs us in the kind of heart disposition that we should be striving for as the people of God. And it's a psalm that, if meditated upon, shows us that we have great reason, great reason to hope in God. Now, there are many people in a constant state of anxiety and, and worry currently, and I recognize that you could pretty much say that any time in any year, right? I'm not a fool. This is kind of how things always are. There are always unknowns. There are always hardships, and people don't always handle them well. People don't always handle them in a way that honors the Lord. But right now, at least in my short life, uh, there seems to be a general tenor of anxiety and fear in most people that I am not used to seeing. Um, more so than any time in my life, I'm, I'm seeing that. Now, let me give you some examples, and maybe some of them will hit home for you. Uh, maybe I'm going to describe you. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I know that politics have many people upset and anxious right now, uh, very much so. Many, many are wondering what life for Americans um, is going to look like in the future, and more specifically, people are wondering what life for Christians will look like in the future under a Biden-Harris regime. Uh, What freedoms will Christians lose? That's a question people are asking. What freedoms are we going to lose? Because we will face greater hardships under them. Um, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I think that you're foolish if you think that Christians won't suffer adversely under a leftist government. But people are asking, what are Christians going to suffer? What will our government look like? What kind of changes will be made? How bad could it get? People are afraid. Coronavirus has many people living in fear and worry. People are asking, when will this end? Will I be one who dies? Will a loved one die? Uh, On the other hand, what other tyrannical restrictions will our leaders put in place because of this? Will things ever go back to normal? People are asking those questions. Or maybe your worry is more micro, right? It's not national or international. It's nothing that huge, but it's more Local, right? Like your family isn't getting along. Say you have a sibling or a spouse, parent or child or friend that you have problems with and nothing seems to resolve it. Nothing. So you are constantly consumed with that issue, whatever it may be. Maybe you have a family member in poor health and you constantly fret over that. Or you're not able to find work right now. Or the job that you have is not stable because of events outside of your control Or there's just some other general problem that you just can't fix. It's beyond you. It's outside of your power, and so you worry and you are consumed. Or finally, maybe you just have a general fear of the future. I know that that's a thing that people deal with. You fear the unknown with all of the negative possibilities and difficult outcomes that could come to you. But whatever it is, you find yourself always worrying, always upset. Or maybe not always, but these are the general tones of your life. You're always trying to solve the problem. You're never resting. You're always anxious, never at peace. You're never at rest. You're never calm. Maybe 
you've even become angry or upset with God because you know, and if you're a Christian, you've had to wrestle with this, you know that God could solve it all at any moment. He could. And you've been crying out to Him to help fix the situation, help fix it all, but He hasn't. And so you find yourself frustrated with the Lord. If I've just described you at all, or you are prone to feeling or behaving in any of those ways, then this psalm will be a great help to you. Because in this psalm, we see a great example for the content, confident, calm maturity that we should all be striving diligently to attain. We see the maturity of a believer who doesn't worry, but instead trusts God with everything. In this psalm, we see the maturity of a believer at peace in the arms of his God. But not only do we see a great example in this little psalm, but we also see how we, as well, can attain this maturity. So I invite you to listen intently, to be open to receive rebuke from the word of God, and to be encouraged with the truth that our God will care for his people. I also invite you to ignore my daughter screaming in the nursery. (laughs) But I hope we all learn that we don't need to live in worry or trying to control all aspects of our lives, but that we would know that we can entrust ourselves to God and have peace. Okay, so with that said, now as a sign of respect for our God, if you would and you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible words. Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our kind Father, we come to you now asking that you would bless the preaching of your word. Make our hearts ready to receive your word. Make us hungry for your truth. Open our hearts to receive what you have for us in this text. And help us to believe and by your spirit working mightily within us, help us to apply what we see. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to humble ourselves like children and trust you, our great God and Father. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so some context for you for this psalm. Um, We don't really know the exact context of this psalm, right? So there's your little thing for the day. We don't know, right? Uh, We don't know the exact context that this psalm was written in. Some scholars, mainly older scholars, I'm thinking John Hill, John Gill, Matthew Henry, uh, people like that. Some scholars have, have taken some guesses, and some guesses are better than others, but they are still guesses nonetheless. We don't know the exact historical context this psalm was written in because the superscription doesn't tell us. The superscription is that bit that says a song of a sense of David, right? That's actually part of the inspired text itself. Okay, it's actually part of the psalm. It doesn't tell us what the context is. Some psalms, I believe it's Psalm 3 is one that tells us here's what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm, right? Or he wrote this after. You'll see that in some of the superscriptions in the Psalter, but we don't see that here. All we're told is that this psalm is a song of a sense. That is, it's a psalm that Jews sung as they were on their way up to Jerusalem for various Old Testament festivals. And we're also told that it is of David. That is, King David wrote this psalm. Aside from that, we don't know much about the background or what was going on in David's life when he wrote this little song. 
But we can, right? All is not lost. We can look at the words of this psalm itself and, and see some very general circumstances, attitudes, and emotions that would have led up to the writing of this psalm. And, and, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But for now, I want you to see that since we aren't told the exact historical context of this psalm, I think that means that it's meant to be understood broadly. Right? God has left us to just consider the words themselves and see the struggle David went through internally and see the spiritual place where he arrived. Right? And this is God's blessing to us. This means that we can then appropriate this psalm to many different situations in our life. Right? God has left it broad for our benefit. But let's go ahead and dive into the psalm itself. Verse 1, O Yahweh, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What a beginning, right? That David can say this to God with confidence. He's not lying. He says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. David begins by affirming his humility. It starts with David, the psalm starts with David speaking of the things he is not. And again, he's saying these things to God. The opening words, O Yahweh, right? So this song is a prayer of David. And I think we can take the first two lines together. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. These are Hebrew ways of talking about arrogance and pride. Right? Often in the Bible, we read of a proud heart and haughty eyes being things that God despises, right? especially in the book of Proverbs. Right? God hates those things, a lifted up heart, a proud heart, and haughty eyes. But here David says, I don't have either of those things. I don't have that. To have a heart that's lifted up in this sense is to have a heart that is too high for its own good. Right, the heart being the inner man. This is to have too high of an opinion of yourself. It's to think more of yourself than you ought to. It's to have a sinful sense of self-importance. To have a lifted up heart is to think that the world revolves around you and that you're the most important being. That things ought to go your way as you think that they should go. It's to believe in your heart, again, that your life and your opinions and your thoughts and your plans are what is supreme. And to have eyes that are raised too high is basically another way of saying the same thing. When your eyes are high, you look down upon other people. You think that you are above it all. Again, this is a high esteem of yourself. So David is describing arrogance, selfishness, and pride. A proud-hearted and high-eyed person is someone who thinks that they know best, always. They always know what's best. They overestimate their own abilities. They think that they can solve all problems. They, they think that they are the end-all, be-all of life. Such a person is self-reliant. They don't depend upon God, but they depend upon themselves to figure everything out. And as I was writing this sermon, I can't get away from the idea that the kind of attitude David is describing is someone who thinks that they know it all. Someone who thinks that they know it all. They think more highly of themselves than they should. And if people would just listen to this person, if they would just listen to them, maybe even if God would just listen to them, but if people would just listen to them in all of their wisdom, then everything would go just fine. That's a person with a proud heart and haughty eyes. If, if even God would just listen to them, things would go well. And David's saying, that's not me. I don't think like that. I don't think about myself that way. And David also says, I think this is the most powerful statement in my opinion, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
what kind of things are he t- is he talking about? I think that David has Deuteronomy 29, 29 on his mind. That verse reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to Yahweh. The secret things belong to God. David says, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. He's saying, I don't spend my time fretting over things that are impossible for me to know. Right? I don't sit and anxiously try to pry into those things that God has not revealed in the word of God. And I don't pry into the secret things of God. Right? And these things are what we call in theology the secret will of God or the decretive will of, of God, the, the, the will of decree. Um, these, these are things that God has ordained will come to pass but are not contained in the Bible. Right? God ordains all that comes to pass so his secret will is everything that comes to pass, but he doesn't tell us everything that's going to come to pass in the scriptures. So we can't know them. That's why it's called the secret will. Right? It's a secret, and you've not been told it, and neither have I. The things that are too great and too marvelous for David and us are those things, again, I know I'm laboring the point. I just want you to see this. They are the things that God has not decided to tell us. This could be asking uh, the questions, why did God do that? Why did God do that? Why did God allow this thing to happen? Why is God making me go through this hardship? How does this all work into his plan? And you're wanting specifics, not the broadly, it's for his glory and our good, but you're wanting specifics. It's asking the questions, why does God do the things that he does? What's going to happen in the future? Why is this hardship happening to me? What is my future going to be? David recognizes that those things are not for him to know. And it is arrogance to sit and worry and try to figure out the secret things of God. And so David does not occupy himself with trying to search out the unknowable and inscrutable ways of God. He doesn't sit and fret or worry about those things that are too high and too wonderful for him to comprehend as a finite human being. Again, to summarize verse 1, we can see David is saying quite plainly, I'm not arrogant. I'm not proud. I don't think more highly of myself than I should, and I don't presume to pry into the secret things of God as if I could understand them. As if I would, as we sang, give counsel to the Lord. But then David says in verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. David says, but... That's a word of contrast, so pay attention here. This is important. That's a word of contrast. So instead of being proud and arrogant, David has done something else. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. But notice that little phrase, I have calmed and quieted. That means that David, we'll come back to this later, David had to do that. And that means that David was not always calm and quiet in spirit. And since David is contrasting his now calmed and quieted soul with pride and arrogance, that tells us something very important for our understanding of this psalm. David was not always humble like he says he is in this psalm. Again, he's contrasting a calm, quiet soul with a proud and arrogant heart. And he says, I have become calm, which means I wasn't calm. 
So all the things mentioned in verse 1 are things that were true of David at one point in his life. There was a point in time where he was quite arrogant in his heart, where he was proud towards the Lord, searching into things that are above his understanding. David must have been arrogant toward God in the past. How? Not entirely sure. Right? The superscription doesn't tell us. But considering that the metaphor in verse 2 of this psalm, and we've not gotten into it yet, but considering that the metaphor is that David had learned to be calm and quiet like a weaned child, it must mean that something was going on in his life that he didn't like. Why do I say that? Have you ever met a child that wants to be weaned? They don't. Right? You've never met a child that wants to be weaned, but it's something that the mother forces upon the child for their own good. So something must have been going on that was hard for David to deal with or understand. Maybe something was being taken away from him, like the mother takes her breast away from the child. He's being weaned. Maybe there was some kind of hardship thrust upon David by God's providence. Maybe there was some kind of uncertainty about his future. Maybe it was a national problem. He was king. Maybe it was an international issue that had gone south. Again, he's king. He's got big things that he's dealing with. But whether it was big or small, whether it was public or private, it was something that upset David and hurt him. Whatever was going on in David's life, it was something that was hard on him. And perhaps in the midst of it all, David had presumed in his heart to tell God how to do his job as God. Maybe, and I'm speculating here, maybe David had been occupying himself with things beyond his pay grade. Maybe David had spent his days thinking, why would God cause this to happen? What is his plan for this? Why would he let this happen to me? Maybe David had at one time, in the proudness of his heart, begun to think that if God would just do things his way or give him what he wanted, that things would be better. Maybe David was being arrogant and proud and that he presumed to be wiser than God and thought that God should get with his program and do what he thinks is best for his life. We don't know for sure, but I think that something like that fits the metaphor in verse 2 and the things that David says he is not any longer in verse 1. But whatever was going on in David's life, whatever difficulty it was, David had been acting like a child that doesn't want to be weaned. He was fussing with the Lord. He was inconsolable, irritated, upset, not at peace, but warring with God in his heart, not wanting to submit to God's plan for his life, not wanting to entrust himself and his future to God. But whatever the difficulty was, David had eventually learned to humble himself. In light of verse 2, we see that verse 1 is the posture of a man who has been humbled. Again, he wasn't always calm and quiet before God. I know I'm laboring the point a bit. He had been arrogant toward the Lord, but now he can come to a place, rather, or he has come to a place where he says, Lord, I give up. I give up. I can't figure out my circumstances. I cannot fix the problems that I face. I'm not wise enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the resources. Contrary to what the culture says, I am not enough. David's come to a point where he humbles himself before God and says, I'm not enough. I can't do it. But instead of being driven to despair like an unbeliever would, David is driven to humility. So he humbles himself. He acknowledges his weakness. 
And he is content to not have all of his questions answered. He doesn't pry into things that are too great for him. David now begins to see himself rightly, and he begins to see God rightly. He's done presuming to know better than God what ought to happen to him. In light of verse 2, we could summarize verse 1 like this. Lord, I know my place before you. I am not you. I am a finite creature. You are God. I am not. I submit. And I humble myself before your greatness and your will for me. I submit to your sovereign will over my life and circumstances. I am in your hand. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't pry into things that are beyond my understanding. What a sweet place of humble submission to find yourself in. And note this. This is not an uninterested, apathetic kind of submission to God where you just say, I just don't care anymore. Right? Because we can get that way, right? Beat down by life and you just go, you know what? I don't care. That's not what David's talking about. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. This means that David has turned over his will to the Lord. This is a humble giving up of sorts. Turning your will over to the Lord. Christian, instead of fighting in your heart, here's some early application. Instead of fighting in your heart and presuming that you know what is best for your life and worrying yourself to death, instead of that, entrust yourself to God. Humble yourself before Him. You know, God says all over the Bible that He actively opposes the proud, doesn't He? He actively opposes the proud. So if you're arrogantly trying to keep control over your life and arrogantly worrying about everything, know that the Lord will oppose you because of the pride in your heart. But God promises to give grace to those who sweetly submit to Him like David did. And at the right time, in accord with His plan, and in accordance with His grace, He will come to your aid and raise you up as He sees fit. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Know this, it is arrogant to not humble yourself before God because to refuse to humble yourself and submit shows that you do not trust Him, but you trust you. That's why it's arrogant to not submit yourself to the Lord. You're trusting in yourself, a sinner, instead of the holy God. But He promises grace to those who humbly trust in Him. But now let's turn our attention to the picture David gives us in verse 2. I'll read the verse again. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The mood of this verse is just calm. Remember, this is a poem. There's a mood to it. It's, It's serene. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. But what does David mean to show us Here, what does he mean to show us about his relationship with God? What are we supposed to learn from this picture of a weaned child? I have some thoughts. It's a picture of calm after a great struggle. That's what it's a picture of. Breaking a baby from nursing is rarely easy. There is a fight that ensues. And there is a struggle before there is peace. You know, if you've had children... An unweaned child is easily disturbed. If things aren't just right, if it is not fully sated and in a good mood, the weaned baby cries and wants more from his mother. Things must be just how the baby wants it to be or it will not be content that it will want its mother's breast. 
But David says that he is like a weaned child. So side note here, maybe this will help you throughout the rest of this explanation. In their culture, a weaned child was between the ages of three and five, which is a lot older than our culture tends to be. But David said he's like a weaned child. He has learned to be calm and content. He is not easily disturbed by the hardships of life. He's learned to be confident in the Lord. He's learned to be confident in the goodness of God and provision for his life. He's come to be okay with what the Lord has for him. He has learned to trust the Lord with his future. He is as calm as a weaned child sitting in his mother's lap, content to just sit there and be. So David has become calm like a weaned child. But weaned from what? I think that given what he mentions in verse 1, that David has been weaned from self-will. He's been weaned from demanding that everything go his way and according to his desires. He's been broken from demanding to know how things are going to pan out. He's been broken from sitting and anguishing over the future and what will become of him. He's been weaned from the demand that life be easy on him. He's been broken from the demands for earthly comforts. And again, he has learned to trust in God. And I want to highlight again that David says he's like a child who has been weaned. The process is over. The child has been broken from the breast, but nevertheless, it was a process. It was a process. Right? It didn't just happen. That means, and this will be important later, David had to learn this quiet contentment. He had to learn it. He had to learn this trust and reliance upon God to do what is right and good for him. It didn't just happen. I'm sure there were many nights of tears like with a child. I'm sure that there were many days of restlessness and frustration and habit-breaking before David learned this contentment and trust. And you know, I was thinking about this. If a child is cognizant enough at the time of its weaning, I'm sure it feels as if the mother is just being cruel. I'm sure the baby feels like the mother is just denying her breast out of meanness. Right? If the child is old enough to think, it would be thinking, why won't you just give me what I want? Why won't you just make this easy on me? You can do it if you want to. You have the means. But that's not the case at all, is it? The mother's not being cruel. The mother is helping the child to grow up into maturity. And the weaned child, though it did not want to grow initially, is better off because of what first appeared as cruelty from the mother. Not only that, but a weaned child has learned to trust his mother. The baby has to learn that even though there is no food on demand at all times, that the mother will still feed him. Though the child is uncomfortable because he desires the breast, there will still be care and comfort given by the mother, just not in the way that the baby expected or wanted. Part of being weaned is the child learning to trust that his mother will still take care of him, even though his situation has changed and he is made horribly uncomfortable and maybe even afraid. David is saying that he has learned to trust in God. I keep repeating that. That's what he's learned. He's learned that God will indeed take care of him through whatever lies ahead in life. And because of that, his soul is calm and he is at peace. One final thing about this picture. 
The weaned child has accepted the decision of the mother. He has come to terms with the fact that the mother won't be giving the breast anymore. The decision is made. It's done. Things have changed, and the baby can't change it back. So he now accepts how things are. Again, he's weaned. It's, it's, it's a done deal. He's not crying for the breast anymore is the picture. It's a done deal. The child has accepted how things are. But the trust is still there. In fact, it's strengthened. Mother will still feed me. Mother still loves me even though she did something I didn't want her to do. And I still love her. She is my mother. She is my mother. The child has grown and the closeness and care of the mother is still there. David says he has learned that. What a great thing for us to learn. To learn to be content with what God does in our lives. To learn to trust in him. To learn to not worry, but to rely upon him. To learn to not fight him, but to lean on him. To learn that he still loves us and cares for us, even when he does things that we don't like. To learn that is worth more than all the money in the world. Because to learn that is to learn peace. David had learned to submit himself to God. And he had become like a trusting child. May we learn that this, may we learn this confident, constant, and content trust in God, even when we don't understand what is happening or why or what the result will be. This is a beautiful thing that we ought to, as God's people, strive to attain. But how did David do this? Like, how did he become calm and quiet in his soul? More to the point for us, maybe, how can we do this? How are we to do this? How can we become like this? I think the answer is in the psalm. I think it's twofold. First, the beginning of verse 2 tells us something important for this. Maybe you passed over this and never, never thought about it. David says, but I have, I have calmed and quieted my soul. David did it. Before we go on. No doubt this is all due to the grace of God. Apart from God, we can do nothing. We can't grow. We can't learn. We cannot do any spiritual good apart from God first acting in and upon our hearts. We know that. Right? We can't grow up into maturity apart from the grace of God working mightily in us. But nevertheless, David focuses on his response to the grace of God. Like Paul said to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, work it out. Do something. You have to do something. Show your salvation. Work it out. Then he goes on to say, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, God is working in you to produce good fruit. Now you need to respond. You need to do that's what Paul says. David's not contradicting Paul here. Right? God is at work in the heart of the believer, but we are to cooperate and do as God works mightily in us by his spirit. But David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. This means that David consciously worked at this. He says, I have. He did it. He did something. By God's grace, he did something. It didn't just happen to him. But he worked toward this heart posture of trusting in the Lord. What does that mean? 
some broad things. That means that he would have rebuked himself when he found himself fretting over life. He would have rebuked himself for worrying. He would have called himself out when he noticed that he was being upset with the Lord. And he would have repented of those sins because those are sins. He would have repented of them. He would have drove himself more deeply into prayer and meditating on the word of God. He would have intentionally set his heart on God with a conscious striving to trust in him more. All that is to say, and I use this phrase when I'm counseling people from time to time, this took conscious mental effort from David. It took conscious mental effort. He intentionally broke sinful patterns of thought and action and replaced them with godly ones, like the Apostle Paul tells us, put off and put on. He didn't just sit on his couch and wait to magically become more content and trusting in the Lord. Instead, he worked at it. He saw that he needed to humble himself, so he began to consciously humble himself before the Lord as often as he saw the pride of self-willing and autonomy rise up in his heart. He would rebuke himself and humble himself. So know this. If you desire to be a mature Christian like King David, this is not just going to happen. Right? You always see like the, the old saint who's like 80 years old sitting on the back row of the pew. Right? We don't have any of those people here yet. We'll become those people. It's cool. But you always see that saint in the back row that everyone's like, that, that believer, that woman or that man is wise. And that is a person of faith. Right? They trust in the Lord. Do you think they woke up on their 80th birthday and just became that person? That's nonsense. That's years of fruit. That's years of discipline. That's years of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You don't wake up that way. It takes effort. You will have to force yourself to trust the Lord and refuse to worry and be anxious. You will have to force yourself to submit to God and stop trying to control every aspect of your life. And if you think force sounds legalistic, you are not yet glorified. You are at war with your sinful nature. You will have to force yourself to do this sometimes. Sometimes obedience and humble submission will flow out of you like water out of a stream. And other times you will have to force it. Because you love the Lord. In order for us to grow, we must break sinful habits of self-reliance and pride. We must intentionally humble ourselves before God and submit to Him. To learn peace, we must learn peace. You have to learn it. And this primarily is going to happen through prayer reading the word and meditating on what God has revealed in scripture. Not because that's a cookie cutter Sunday school answer, but because it's in the word and in meditating upon the word that we will learn who this God is who we can trust in. God will give grace for this, no doubt. All right, I want to be clear. It won't just be a matter of white-knuckled obedience, but there will be effort, and you should know that ahead of time. If you want to have this disposition, it will take effort. But the second thing that David did is he took his own advice. He obeyed his own command. Read verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. David gives this command at the end of the psalm. Why? Because this is how he learned to be calm and quiet and content. He is recommending to all the people of God. And remember, the church is the true Israel of God. So this is for us too, right? He is telling the people, he's recommending to all of God's people what he learned for himself personally. 
he hoped in God. He took his own advice. He trusted in God for his future. And he resolved to be content with whatever God had in store for him, no matter what it was. He trusted that the Lord would be kind to him and care for him like a mother loves her child. To hope in God, what does that mean? Let me expound on it a bit more. To hope in God is to be confident in God for the future. Hope looks beyond today into the time ahead. And it's not just wishful thinking, okay? Hope looks beyond your present hardships and circumstances and fears. And it's not just ridiculously, childishly optimistic, but it looks to God to do good for you in the future. Hope, I heard a preacher say, I'm stealing it, hope is the daughter of faith. If your faith is in God, then you have hope. Know that for a fact. To hope in the Lord is to trust in God for your future. Again, it's to trust Him to work all things out for His glory and your good. It's to trust Him for tomorrow instead of fretting about it today. To hope is to have confident assurance that He will be our God from now and to eternity and that He will carry us through whatever lies ahead in our lives. To hope in God is to remember that He is God. If I could recommend you, even now this is hitting me differently than when I wrote it. Be awestruck by that. To hope in God is to remember and recognize He is God. What can He not do? To hope in God is to recognize that He is God. Is He not faithful to His covenant? Has He not set His covenant love upon you? He's God. Is anyone wiser than him to plan your life? He's God. Is anyone, does anyone love his people more than he does? He's God. Sit in that. Be awestruck by that. To hope in him is to remember he is God. He's wise to plan. He's good to purpose. He is strong to execute his plans, and he will withhold no good thing from his people. Brothers and sisters, if our hope is set on God, if we really believe that he will always be our God, if we really believe that he holds all things in his hands, then we can be calm and quiet in our souls. If we hope in God, we can be as quiet and content as a weaned child in the arms of his loving mother. Please know and have it settled in your heart that you can trust him. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your situation. You can trust him with your future. You can trust him. Of course he's going to take care of you. He's God. Have no doubt about that whatsoever. Let me give you some reasons why you should hope in him. I know I just jumped the gun. He is God. Remember that, but I have some written for you. He has been faithful to you in the past. He's done many kind things for you already. He's seen you through many hardships already. He has provided for you many times before. Of course, you can hope in him. More than that, he has been faithful to other saints. Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. He's been faithful to other saints, and you are of the same covenant as them, with the same God and the same love and the same providential care from him. Look to your brothers and sisters in this congregation and see how God has dealt well with them and provided for them. Look to history and see how God has preserved his church in horrible countries down through the ages. Look how God has raised up and thrown down kings 
in order to discipline but ultimately benefit his people. Look to the word of God and see example after example after example of how God has always preserved a holy seed for himself according to grace. Of course you can trust him. Moreover, and most importantly, he's proven his love for you in Christ. Please stop and consider that every time you think that you can't trust him. Every time that you doubt his goodness and faithfulness and trustworthiness, I want you to consider Christ and have it settled forever that he loves you and he's doing what's best for you in it. Remember that he sent his son, he gave his son to die for you. He sent his son into the world to live, die, and be resurrected for you. That he gave his son as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice for you in your place. Remember that through Christ, God has purchased you to be his special possession forever. And that by grace and not by merit from you. Remember that God in his mercy has chosen you before you were born to be saved so that you would be with him forever by his side. Of course you can trust this God. And I know that you already know that as a fact. I know that. If you don't know that by now, I have utterly failed you as a minister of the gospel. But I bring that up again and again because if we would just get that into our bloodstream, right, that God has proven his love for us in his son, then we would hope in him for all of our days and never doubt. I'm convinced of that. Brothers and sisters, if God did not spare his son in order to save you, do you really think he's going to abandon you now? If God did not spare his son in order to do you the ultimate good of salvation, do you really think that God will not provide and care for you in smaller matters? If God has shown himself trustworthy by making covenant promises to save you from your sins and you believe them with all your heart, do you really think he is not trustworthy for your future? You're already trusting him for your eternity. Why not tomorrow? If God did not spare his son in order to save you, do you think he's going to spare you comfort and help in time of need? Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? Of course you can trust him. Of course you can trust him. Have it settled in your heart once and for all that you can hope in him. Humble yourself before him. Quiet your soul before him and trust him. And when should you begin to do this? David says... From this time forth and forevermore. Right now. Hope in Him now. Don't fight Him and fret and worry and try to maintain control on the car ride home. Don't do it Monday morning. Don't pace the floor and try to tell Him what He should do with your life. But even right now in your seats, set your hope in Him. Take the peace that is offered to you. Have you considered that? It's as if the Lord is holding out his hand saying, do you want peace? I'll give it to you right now. Humble yourself before me and trust me and you will have peace. Begin the process of weaning now and hope in him and never stop. David says from this time forth and forevermore, hope in him. Cast yourself upon him in humble faith. He will not disappoint you. He has never failed a single person. And he is not going to start with you. Why should his name be profaned? He won't profane his own name. He will be faithful to his people whom he has redeemed. 
So brothers and sisters, pray this psalm. Pray through it. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. Practice it. Make it yours. But one last word before I end. Maybe you're not yet at a place where you can pray this psalm. Maybe you're not at a place where you can pray this honestly like David did. Maybe it's not your psalm yet. But you want it to be, don't you? Everyone who's been born of the Spirit of God wants this to be theirs. Right? You, you want to have this disposition of humble trust. You want to have the heart posture that David describes here. So maybe make this psalm yours by saying, I'm not going to, and I will, and I'm trying to. Maybe you'll say this, Oh Lord, I'm not going to lift up my heart anymore. I'm not going to raise my eyes too high anymore. I'm not going to occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me anymore. But I will calm and quiet my soul until I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Lord, I will hope in you from this time forth and forever. I'm trying to. Help me. Maybe this psalm isn't yours yet. Maybe you still need to be weaned. I'd say that's most of us in some way or another. But that's okay. That's okay that you're not fully mature yet. It's okay. So long as you desire to be and will strive by God's grace working mightily in you to grow up in Christ, to grow in trust and hope in the Lord, begin the fight. It's okay that you're not yet there yet. I'm not always there yet, man. This is hard. This psalm takes a very little time to read and yet a lifetime to master. But begin the fight today. Start today to hope in God and humble yourself before Him. And take heart. Your Heavenly Father is patient with you. If you think a mother with her child is patient, that is laughable in comparison to how much the Lord our God loves you, His child. He will not cast you off as you're learning to be calm, content, and confident in Him. He loves you. He has set his covenant faithfulness upon you and he will be faithful to grow you and preserve you until the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this psalm that is short but it pierces our heart and it it shows us the disposition that we all want. God, help us to trust you. Help us to set our hopes in you. Help us to stop trying to be autonomous Help us to stop fretting and worrying all the time. Help us to lay it all aside, God. Not that we would become apathetic, but that we would say, I trust the Lord. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. We're not going to be apathetic, Lord, and we're not going to not care. and We're not going to use the resources available to us to try to better ourselves. But God, let it be settled in our heart that you are God and you will take care of us. Give us peace, Lord. Help us work in our hearts, God, that we might respond to your grace and calm and quiet our souls. We ask this not for our sakes, but for Christ's sake, who purchased us. Be faithful to your covenant, O holy God. Amen.